Well, hey, welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are here. If you're new, my name's Chad, and we are excited that you chose to spend the first Sunday of 2024 with us. In addition to this great crowd, we have a whole bunch of people joining us online as well. So if you are in the room, would you put your hands together, get loud, welcome in our online family. Let them know we're glad that they're joining us for worship here today. And I hope everybody had a great end to 2023 and a great beginning to 2024. My family, the day after Christmas, we got to travel back to Kentucky, where we're from, to visit some of our family. And we got to do something that we haven't been able to do for a couple years, and that was attend a Kentucky basketball game at historic Rupp Arena. And we had a great time watching the Cats play. But the day before the game, we were doing some shopping in Lexington with my parents, and we went to the University of Kentucky campus bookstore. And everything's more expensive there, but still, we don't get a chance to go there a whole lot. So we went to buy some stuff. And my son, Alex, he's 10, he wanted this Nike Kentucky basketball. Now, this thing was $17.99, which I thought was pretty expensive for this little mini basketball. But he wanted it, and I said, hey, you got some money for Christmas and stuff? If you want it, spend your own money and get it. He said, yeah, I'm going to do it because I want to get Reed Shepard's autograph. For those of you who don't know, and you should know, but for those of you who don't know, Reed Shepard is a guard who plays for Kentucky. And he's a fan favorite. Like he's from Kentucky. He's uh, projected to go in the top 20 in the NBA draft. His parents, both mom and dad, played basketball at Kentucky. The fans love him. And Alex, my son, absolutely loves him as well. And he wanted Reed's autograph. And so I was like, well, buddy, if you want to buy the ball and try to get his autograph at the game, you can. But you need to know at Kentucky games, like they keep the players away from the fans. There's security all around them. And because they're like celebrities and everybody wants to, you know, get their autograph. And so you may not get it. So you might be spending. 18 bucks plus tax on this ball and not even get to use it to get an autograph. And Alex was like, it's worth it. It's worth the shot. So I was like, okay. And I didn't want him to be disappointed, but he got it anyway. And so we were leaving the bookstore and we were still driving on campus and we drove past the dorm where the Kentucky basketball players live. My dad's driving the car. And as we are driving past the dorm, there the front door of the dorm opens up and out walks Reed Shepard. And so I wasn't sure if we were going to get to meet him at the game, but we had a shot to meet him right there. And so my dad led, led Alex and I out of the car and we ran up to him and we ran up to Reed Shepard. We were like, hey, Reed, Reed, would you sign my son's basketball? And Reed was getting ready to walk into this other building, but he turned around real fast. And as Reed Shepard turned around, I realized it wasn't Reed Shepard. <laughs> It was somebody else. And I don't know who it was. Wasn't another basketball player. I have no idea who this guy was, but it wasn't Reed Shepard. And the guy's like, sorry, I'm not him. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. He said, it's okay. It happens all the time. That didn't make me feel any better. But still, uh, I was really, you know, embarrassed. And so uh, we were walking back to the car, disappointed. And I turned to Alex and I figured he'd be bummed out. And I was just like, hey, buddy, I'm so sorry. Are you okay? And he said, yeah, I'm fine. Are you okay? <laughs> And I'm like, yeah, why? And he goes, because daddy, that was really embarrassing for you. And you know what? <laughs> He's right. It was pretty embarrassing to me. But the good news is we did end up getting to meet Reed Shepard at the Kentucky basketball game because my wife, Allison, ran into his mom before the game. I mean, I have no idea how this happened, but anyway, she talked to his mom and his mom said, yeah, come over and hang out with us after the game and you can meet my son. And so Alex got his basketball sign right there by Reed Shepard. And he, yeah, you can clap for that. Why not? Yeah. I asked him if I could use his uh, ball in the sermon. He's like, guard it with your life. So anyway, I'm keeping a close watch on it. But you know, if you've ever been on the wrong side of a bad assumption, the wrong side of a case of mistaken identity, it can be pretty embarrassing. 
In fact, it can even get you into trouble. And today we're starting a new series called Alpha and Omega. And we are going to be studying over the next few weeks, a book in the Bible that's probably been the victim of more bad assumptions and cases of mistaken identity than any other book in the entire Bible. And that's the book of Revelation. Now, I know that when you hear the book of Revelation, certain things come to mind. In fact, in my 16 years of full-time preaching experience at two different churches, I've discovered that there are really two different groups, two different camps when it comes to the book of Revelation in today's church. The first camp is the Revelation is confusing and scary camp. And let's face it, it kind of is. I mean, when you open up the book of Revelation and you see like dragons and beasts and stars falling from the sky and bowls of wrath and all these other bold, wild images. It can be a little intimidating. It can be a little scary. And so this group, well, they just kind of ignore Revelation. They know it's there, but they just kind of ignore it because they're either afraid of it or they're confused by it. And I have to admit, I fell into this category for a long time. I mean, I knew that Revelation had caused a whole lot of problems throughout the history of the church in the sense that churches had divided over Revelation and churches had even like gotten into fights over Revelation. There have been wars that have been fought that have been based on Revelation. Cults had formed because of Revelation. I even heard a story just the other day about a preacher who was preaching on Revelation and somebody in his church disagreed with him and out in the lobby, the guy punched the preacher in the face. And let me just tell you, if you disagree with anything I ever preached, there's a better way to handle it, okay? We can disagree in love, all right, if we need to. There's a better way to handle it. But I was scared to preach on the book of Revelation because it is so controversial. It is confusing. And I just didn't want to do it. In fact, people would come to me and they would say, hey, why don't we do a study on Revelation? And I would say, okay, there are 66 books in the Bible. When we study the other 65 thoroughly, then we'll study Revelation. And they would laugh and I would laugh, but I just have to be transparent with you. That was a cop-out answer. And for some of us, if you were to take Revelation out of our Bibles, we really wouldn't even miss it because we really act like we only have 65 books. But it wasn't until a few years into my first full-time ministry when I was working on my doctorate in ministry. I was taking a doctoral class and the professor challenged me to do a series, a sermon series on Revelation. And so he and I did a deep dive into the book of Revelation. And a truth hit me, which I already knew, but I was kind of ignoring it, and it's this. Revelation is God's word. And it's given to us by God for a purpose. God hasn't given us anything he doesn't want us to study and to learn. And I don't get to pick and choose what parts of the Bible I wanna listen to and pay attention to. If I'm going to preach the whole counsel of God, then I've gotta preach the whole counsel of God. I've gotta preach all of it. And so I started studying Revelation at that time in its original context. And my eyes were open to some great and encouraging truths from it. But here's the thing, if there's one camp that wants to avoid and ignore the book of Revelation because they're scared and confused by it, there's another camp. And this is the Revelation obsession camp. This is the camp that if the other group has only 65 out of 66 books, this camp only has one book ever in the Bible that they study. They focus on Revelation and Revelation only. Everything is Revelation. It doesn't matter if they're in a small group studying on Proverbs, they're going to Revelation. They're looking at every world event and cultural event that takes place, and they're trying to all squeeze it into the book of Revelation. Everything is Revelation. They only really have one book that they ever look at that they ever really study. And this is also very unhealthy. 
because we don't have one book. And Revelation has to be interpreted in the context of all of Scripture. But not only that, when you're just so focused on Revelation, you're trying to squeeze everything into it, you can make a lot of mistakes and you can abuse it to the point that you start saying, hey, that right there, that's happening in our world, that's in the book of Revelation. The problem is 10 years pass and you realize, oh, that wasn't it, it was something else. And then 10 more years pass, that wasn't it, it was something else. And it's constantly changing and you end up embarrassing the church and Christianity because you're making all these bold claims that aren't what the book originally intended to say. And there's a little bit of pride in this camp. Not with everybody, but there's some people who wanna brag about how they study Revelation all the time as if they're part of this elite group that can crack the code of Revelation and that's not healthy either. And I believe that these two camps have developed, either the ignore it camp or the abusing camp, because we've approached Revelation over the years with the wrong assumptions, with bad assumptions. I once heard somebody say bad assumptions lead to bad assessments. And I think that's true about a lot of different things in life. It's true about different parts of the Bible and it's especially true when it comes to the book of Revelation. Because we all approach Revelation with rigid assumptions. And we assume that Revelation is going to answer certain questions that our culture or maybe even the church has told us it is supposed to answer. But what if Revelation was never meant to answer the questions we think it's supposed to answer. What if we've been approaching Revelation with the wrong assumptions? Let me give an example of this. There are people that believe that if you read Revelation just right, if you crack the code of Revelation, then you can predict Jesus' second coming when it's going to happen. In fact, if you turn on TV this afternoon, you'll probably find some TV preacher who is predicting when Jesus is going to come back. Or if you go to a Christian bookstore, you'll probably find some books where people are trying to predict when Jesus is coming back. And yet, look at what Jesus himself says. Jesus says in Mark 13, but concerning that day, he's talking about his second coming, he's talking about his return. But concerning that day or that hour, No one knows, not even the angels in heaven know, nor the Son knows, but only the Father. Jesus concerning concerning my second coming, no one knows besides God the Father. What is Jesus here trying to tell us? Don't speculate, because no one knows. Even Jesus limited himself so that he would not No, only God the Father knows. Now, I know uh, that some people will argue this because I've had people do it to me. They say, but look at what that verse says. But concerning that day and that hour, no one knows. And they'll say, well, you know, Jesus says that no one can know the day or the hour, but he doesn't say we can't know the year. And I'm kind of like, do you think that's really what he was getting at? I mean, let's use some theological common sense here. Do you think he was being that literal, that technical? If that's the case, if he was really being that technical and he only meant the day or the hour, then why limit it to the year? Why not say, hey, he didn't say the month, we can figure out the month, right? I mean, why limit it just to the day or the hour? That's not what he's doing here. Jesus is making a general statement, don't speculate because only God knows. And in fact, that word hour actually in Greek can be translated time. That's why one translation puts it this way. No one knows the day or the time. The angels in heaven don't know and the son himself doesn't know. Only the father knows. So if we're not supposed to speculate, now don't misunderstand me. Jesus is coming back. We do have that promise and we can unite on that. But if we're not supposed to speculate, then what are we supposed to do? Well, look what Jesus goes on to say. 
Matthew 24, you also must be ready all the time for the son of man will come when least expected. See, we're not supposed to speculate, but we're supposed to be ready for his return all the time because he's gonna come when it's least expected. Anytime somebody comes to me and says, hey, I think it's gonna be within this time period. I'm like, if you're expecting, it's probably not gonna happen because Jesus says it's gonna happen when we least expect it, right? The whole point is that we are always ready because here's the thing. When you live in a relationship with Jesus, when you know Jesus, it doesn't matter how the future unfolds because you're always prepared. You're always ready. And I don't think that's a bad thing that we don't know when he's going to come back. In fact, I think it's a good thing and it's part of God's plan. Let me illustrate it like this. I was listening to a sermon the other day by Kyle Eidelman and he used this analogy and I could relate to this. Like I could identify with this because I'm a dad, I'm a father, I get it. He said that when his kids were younger, his wife every now and then would take a trip by herself somewhere or with some other ladies and would leave him in charge of the household and charge of the kids while she was away. And I get that because I know uh, there for a couple years, Allison would go to a conference for minister's wives. And so she would leave me in charge of the household in charge of the kids for a few days while she was gone. And my wife would leave me like, a list of stuff to do while she was gone. Because every day she has this routine, you know, she wants the dishes done every morning and the laundry's done at a certain time and lunches are packed for the kids to go to school and they have all this routine and she wants the house to stay in order and whatever else. So she was telling me, this is what you need to do while I'm gone. And so before she left, I was like, yeah, hon, I got this. We're, we'll be fine. I knew we wouldn't be fine. And I was lying. I didn't get that at all. You know, I didn't have that at all. I knew it was gonna be a mess, but we were going to survive. We were going to make it, okay? And so, uh, uh, what would happen is she would leave. She'd be gone for several days. And the first few days that she was gone, I, I wasn't doing dishes every day. We weren't cleaning every day. We were just surviving. And then on the day that she was going to return, on the day that she was gonna come back, guess what? We did a deep clean. You know, we went through the house and we cleaned everything. We made sure everything was straight and in order so that when she got there, it was fine. Because you know what? I knew when her second coming was going to happen, okay? I knew when her plane was going to arrive. And so I was gonna be prepared on the day of her second coming. But what if she had left and she hadn't told me when she was gonna come back. What if she left and she said, hey, I'm gonna be gone for a few days and I'm gonna come back, but I'm not gonna tell you when. It could be any day. You know what? I would change how I manage the household. While she was away, I would turn to my children. I would say, old children, we do not know the day or the hour when your mother will return. So how then shall we live ever ready and prepared for her return? And so we'd be doing the dishes every day. We'd be cleaning every day. I would be putting lookouts, you know, out watching for her because I don't want her to come and me not be ready, right? And the thing is, if Jesus told us exactly when he was gonna come back, what would we do? We would put off what we needed to do until that time came. Let's say, for example, that we knew for sure Jesus was coming back May of this year. I'm not saying he is, but let's say that we did know that. Well, what would a lot of people do? Well, if Jesus comes back in May, I'm gonna wait till May to get ready. I'm gonna do what I wanna do now, and then when May comes, I'm gonna really get my life in order and get it together. And the thing is, what if Jesus did come back in May, but God forbid you died in a car wreck tomorrow? We've gotta live ever ready. And that's why Jesus says, be ready at all times because he could return at any time. See, if you know Jesus, it doesn't matter how the future unfolds because you're always ready. So we're not gonna speculate in this series about when Jesus comes back because Jesus tells us we're not supposed to. Another bad assumption that people have is that people believe that Revelation was meant to scare us. 
Like all this imagery and stuff is supposed to scare us into following Jesus. You know, like strike fear into us so that we will follow him and do what's right. And yet, look at what John says in some of the opening lines to the book of Revelation. John the apostle is writing this and in verse three he says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Do you see a common word there? You should, it's in green. It's the word blessed. What is John saying here? Not fear and destruction, doom and damnation. No, what is he saying? He is saying, blessed is the one who reads this book. The whole point of Revelation was to be a blessing for God's people. It wasn't to scare God's people. By the way, we're gonna talk about this here in just a second. God's people in the day and age that this was written were already suffering, were already experiencing persecution. Revelation wasn't to scare them. It was to be a blessing for them so that they could receive God's blessing in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of difficult times. Revelation was never meant to scare the church, but to strengthen it. But then another assumption that some people have is that Revelation was meant to be secretive. You know, the reason why all these images are in there is because, you know, God wanted to hide the truth in Revelation. And so only a select few people can crack the code and whatever else. And yet go back to that verse that we just looked at. When it says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. That word keep means obey. What is John telling us? Whatever this book is getting ready to tell us, we're supposed to obey it. You might think, well, that's weird. It says it's a prophecy. How do you obey a prophecy? Guys, the majority of prophecies in Scripture are not predictive. The majority of prophecies in Scripture are actually to awaken us to a greater truth. Now, the book of Revelation does predict things about Jesus saying coming. Don't misunderstand me. But it's also something that we're supposed to obey. Whatever John is getting ready to tell us in the book of Revelation is meant to be practical. It's meant to drive our lives now. In fact, one translation puts it this way. It says that we are to do what is written in the book of Revelation. This isn't just for us to sit around and wonder about signs and symbols. We're supposed to put this book into practice. The first century church was supposed to do that, and every generation of the church from then on is supposed to put this book into practice. The book of Revelation wasn't meant to be mysterious. It was meant to be missional in nature so that we can actually apply it to our daily lives and live out the mission of God. So, if that's the case, then what's the point of Revelation? Well, I think when you study Revelation in its original context, you will discover that Revelation gives us unshakable hope in the midst of uncertain times. Because the church that John was writing to was living in uncertain times, scary times. And he gives them hope, a blessing that is found in Jesus in the midst of their uncertainty. And I believe that when you study Revelation in its proper context, You'll see this too, and we'll get the same hope. See, context is critical. Because you can take anything out of context and make it say whatever you want. You can take any passage out of the Bible uh, out of context and make it say whatever you want it to say. Let me give you some examples of this. Let's say the next time that my wife and I, that we're having a, an argument about something or a disagreement on something. I know that never happened to you guys in your all's marriages, but let's say hypothetically it did happen. What if you responded to her or I responded to my wife with a scripture verse? You know, scripture's good, right? So I quoted scripture to her and this is what I said. I will never admit you are in the right till I die. Job 20. 
What if I quoted that to her? Well, first of all, it's not gonna get me anywhere. Second of all, that's not what that verse is saying. That is removing this verse from its context and making it say something it was never meant to say. What about for you parents who have a teenager who wants to go to some wild party and you don't want them to go and you say, no, you're not going. That's not gonna be good for you. And that teenager then responds to you with this verse right here. Let's feast and drink for tomorrow we die. That's not what that verse means. In fact, if you read that verse in its context, it's saying don't live like that. That's not the way that followers of Jesus are supposed to live. And I once heard of a guy who visited a church and he told me that uh, uh, this guy said that when he went to this church at their nursery, they had printed on the door to their nursery this verse right here. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed at the church nursery. Okay, get that? We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Okay, now again, that's not what that verse is talking about. But if you remove a scripture from its context, you can make it say whatever you want. And a lot of people have removed Revelation from its context to make it say whatever they want. Shane Wood, who teaches at Ozark Christian College, says a lot of people have taken Revelation out of its context and they've made a whole lot of money doing it. See, we're not here to make any money. We're not here to sell any books or videos or anything like that. I just wanna dive into the book of Revelation and I want to understand the original context for which it was written because the Bible can never mean what it never meant. The Bible has to mean exactly what God meant it to mean. And I want to understand why God gave us this book in the first place in its original context. So I'm not gonna go through and talk about every theory and every interpretation on the book of Revelation. We're just gonna hit the big themes to understand why God has given us this book because he has given it to us for a purpose. See, Revelation, here's the context. It was written in the middle of the 90s AD about 100 years after the birth of Jesus. And there's only one apostle left living. It's the apostle John. All the other apostles, you know, James and Peter and Paul, they've all been martyred, killed for their faith. And so they wanted to kill John. He's the last living apostle. He's an old man now. But they realized that by killing the apostles, they were just turning them into martyrs and it didn't stop the growth of the church at all. So instead of killing, executing John, they exiled him to an island prison called Patmos. And while John is on Patmos, away from the church, Jesus appears to him and tells him to write a letter to seven churches, seven actual churches that were in the area of Asia Minor in that day and age. It's modern day Turkey, but these are the seven churches. We'll talk about them later on in the series. But he was supposed to write a letter to seven actual churches who were struggling. And they were struggling because there is this guy named Domitian, who is the emperor of Rome, and he is persecuting the church. Here's his lovely, uh, you know, statue or whatever, not really a picture, but a statue, a picture of his statue. And this guy was a tyrant. He was an evil dude, and he wanted everybody to bow down to him as a god. And so the Christians in the first century, they didn't want to do that. They refused to do that, and so he decided to persecute them. And so Christians were losing their homes. Christians were losing their jobs. They were losing their family members. They were even losing losing their own lives simply because they wouldn't bow down to Domitian. And so John writes to these seven churches that Jesus told him to do. And John says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Notice again, John doesn't start off by saying doom and destruction. He starts off by saying grace and peace. Why? Because that's what the church in his day needed. They were struggling. In fact, listen to what John goes on to say in verse nine. 
He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, going to that next slide, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. See, when your preacher is like imprisoned and he's writing to you and he's saying, I'm a companion, a fellow companion in suffering and we need to patiently endure in Jesus, times are tough. Things aren't good. And when pressure and opposition grow, so does the temptation to compromise. And as we read on and see what Jesus tells John to write to these seven churches that existed in the first century world, what we're going to discover is many of these churches have started to compromise. They had started to back away from their faith. They had started to give in to the Roman Empire. They had started to uh, be nominal Christians and lukewarm Christians. And so they had started to compromise their faith. And we can understand why. Because when they looked around at their world, it looked as if the Roman Empire was winning. It looked as if that the emperor Domitian was all powerful. It looked as if the darkness was getting the best of the light. It looks as if that the government was getting the best of the church. It looked as if that Christians were failing. It looked as if evil was winning. But what Revelation is going to tell the church in that day, and it's also going to tell us as well as this, there's more going on than what we see. What we see around us is not the greater reality. And that's why John starts off Revelation in this way. The very first verse, and normally in a letter in this day and age, the first line was like the opening statement. It was kind of the theme of the entire letter, purpose statement. And John writes, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Side note, it does not say the revelations, plural, of Jesus Christ. This is not the book of revelations. It is the book of Revelation. Look at the title in your Bible, okay? So people come to me and, oh, we're gonna study the book of revelations. There's no S on it, okay? It's just singular, just wanna let you know that. Okay, back to this. The revelation of Jesus Christ. See, what is it that John wants for the people to see behind the curtain? What's the greater reality that John wants the people to see? It's Jesus Christ. This word revelation is a Greek word, apocalypsis, and it means to uncover, to disclose, to unveil. It's actually a compound Greek word. Apo, meaning to pull back. Calypsis, meaning a veil or a curtain. Here, John is literally pulling back the curtain so that we can see a greater reality that the world doesn't see. And that greater reality is what? Again, look at what he says. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The greater reality is that Jesus is on the throne. And what the church had forgotten is who Jesus really is. They had forgotten to look at him on the throne on high. The book of Revelation is all about Jesus. It's for Jesus' people. He is a central figure in the book. It is from him to them. He is the narrator. And he, Jesus, is in total control. And that's why John says in the opening lines here, from Jesus Christ, the faith witness. This book is from him, the firstborn of the dead. He defeated death and he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. The emperor of Rome has nothing on him. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins, he has delivered us, rescued us by his blood and made us kingdom, priest to his God and Father. He's got a job for us to do. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It may look like that the Roman Empire has power, but they're only lying. The true power is on the heavenly throne, which Jesus now sits on, and all dominion belongs to him. And what John is trying to remind the church is, Jesus took darkness' best shot, and he triumphed over it. He defeated death. 
And no one takes his throne. And all that's going on in the world around you right now, it's all happening under him. Not that he is making it happen, but he's allowing it to happen in order for his plan to be carried out. He is still in total control. And nothing happens that he doesn't allow to happen. He is the final authority. And the church had forgotten that. Because when you're only looking at the present physical reality around you, it's easy to get discouraged. And the church in John's day had forgotten to pull back the curtain and look at the greater reality that Jesus is on the throne and no one takes his throne from him. Thus the point of the book of Revelation. See, Revelation is a letter written in apocalyptic genre, in in the apocalyptic genre. And apocalyptic literature is a form of literature, a genre that we don't have anymore. But it was popular in the first century world. It was popular, especially among the Jews. And what this genre did is that it would use vivid and bold language to wake people up, to wake people up to truths that they had forgotten. The whole point was to point the people by using these vivid imageries to truths that maybe they had lost sight of. Let me give you an example of this. Like, if you, um, if you wanted to sell Coca-Cola and they asked you to make a commercial, you probably would have made a commercial with just a guy standing there in normal clothes holding up a can of Coke and saying, you need to buy Coke. I mean, probably nobody's gonna buy that, are they? Why, what, do, what do advertisers do? Well, they show you a scene out on the beach in the hot weather and people are playing volleyball and having a good time, but then they need some refreshment because it's hot outside. And so they go over to a cooler that's full of ice and everybody reaches down in it, grabs them a cold Coca-Cola. They open it up, you hear the sound, they all kick it back and they drink and they're having a good time. And then as you watch that commercial, you're thinking, man, I want a Coke, right? See, they draw you in with all these images so that you will see what they're trying to sell. Now, Jesus isn't trying to sell us anything, but Jesus here is trying to remind us of truth that we had forgotten. So John uses these vivid images in order to wake us up to what we should be seeing, wake us up to what we may have forgotten. And these images, I don't believe, reveal anything that the church didn't already know. I think they're just reminding them of the truth that they're supposed to already know. Look at what Paul says in the book of Galatians. Paul says, let me be blunt. If one of us, even if an angel from heaven were to preach something other than what we preach originally, let him be cursed. What is Paul saying here? We've already given you the full gospel message. We've already delivered it to you. So if anybody comes to you and tells you something else besides what we already told you, that person is to be condemned. Even if an angel from heaven appears to you. By the way, a lot of cults start because they say some angel came and gave them some new revelation, okay? Even if an angel from heaven comes to you and tells you something different than what we already preached to you originally, don't believe it. That person is to be condemned. That angel is to be condemned. So I don't think that the book of Revelation, when the church got it, that had anything new in it. They'd already heard all this stuff before, it's just they had forgotten it. And the main thing that they had forgotten was Jesus. See, often when we find ourselves in trouble, what we need is not new information, but what we need to do is to remember what we have forgotten. And they had lost sight of Jesus. They weren't seeing him as clearly as they once did. See, what the church in John's day probably wanted more than anything was for their suffering to be removed but what they needed was a fresh, clear picture of Jesus because a diminished view of Jesus leads to a diminished spiritual life. So that's why as John is on the island of Patmos, 
he's worshiping God. Now, he's a prisoner, but he's worshiping God. And all of a sudden, as he's worshiping God on the Lord's day, he says he heard a voice behind him, and this voice was somewhat familiar to him. So he turned around to see who was speaking to him, and look at what happened. John writes, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, hit pause right there. John will later tell us in the book of Revelation that the seven golden lampstands represent the seven churches that he's writing to. Remember I said he's writing seven churches in Asia Minor? So what's going on here? John hears this voice. It's a voice that's somewhat familiar to him. He turns around to see the voice that is speaking to him. And what does he immediately see? He sees the churches that he's writing to, the Christians that he's writing to. And then, and in the midst of these lampstands was one like a son of man. So then he sees Jesus. He sees the churches first, and then he sees Jesus. And where is Jesus? Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. He is walking among the lampstands. In other words, Jesus is not an absentee landlord. Jesus has not abandoned his people. Jesus has not forgotten about his church. Where is Jesus? Jesus is in the midst of his people. And yes, his people are suffering, but he's right there with them. He has not forgotten them. He is still supporting them. He is still giving them strength. He is still with them and on their side. And sometimes people today will say, well, hey, you can worship Jesus, but you don't need the church. That's interesting to me because in the New Testament, when you want to find the presence of Jesus, the primary place you look is in the midst of his people. And so Jesus is in the midst of his church. And look at what he's wearing. He's clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, John had seen Jesus before. I mean, John had spent three years with Jesus, right? And Jesus never wore anything like this. What is this, this long robe and golden sash? These were the vestments of a high priest and a king. See, the itinerant poor preacher of Galilee has put aside his filthy rags, and now he has taken his rightful spot as sovereign over the cosmos. And then as we read on, it says, the hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. This is not a sign of aging or frailty, but a sign of wisdom and purity. And John goes on to say that his eyes were like a flame of fire. In other words, he sees everything. His vision is piercing. He doesn't miss anything. He knows exactly what's going on in his world, and he knows exactly what's going on in your life. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, meaning he is immovable. He does not stumble. He does not fall down. No one pushes him over. He stands on a solid foundation that cannot be moved. And then John says, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. See, this Jesus, he, when he speaks, he speaks in Niagara thunder. You can't miss his voice. His voice is like the sound of a tidal wave. And when he speaks, people listen John says in his right hand, he held seven stars. And we later find out that those seven stars are the seven messengers of the seven churches, meaning Jesus is holding up in his right hand those who preach and proclaim his word. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, meaning Jesus' weapon is his mouth, his very words, what he teaches, his truth. See, Jesus is going to defeat darkness, but he's not gonna do it with the weapons of this world. He's going to do it with the truth of his word. And then he says, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This Jesus blazes in supernova brilliance. He's like looking at the sun. You guys know you can't look at the sun very long, not directly at least, right? And Jesus blazes like the sun because this isn't the itinerant preacher of Galilee anymore. This is the resurrected Lord. 
This is the one who defeated death. This is the one who holds the cosmos in his hands. This is the one who is seated on the throne of heaven and he is in charge. And John says that when he saw this Jesus, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And we can understand why. (laughs) Because when you stand in the presence of this Jesus, you can't stand idly by, you eat pavement, you worship, you fall to his feet. And let me ask you, when's the last time that Jesus has knocked you to your knees? And when you walked in for worship today, did you think, hey, I'm getting ready to enter into the presence of the living God? Or has this just become old hat to you? Because when you realize who's behind the curtain, when you realize the greater reality that Jesus is on the throne, you worship like never before. But look at what Jesus does. It says, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. What does Jesus do? Jesus puts his hand on John and he says, John, it's me. I know I look different. I know I'm dressed in different clothes and I know I'm all powerful and I'm the resurrected Jesus and all that, but it's still me. And I love you and I'm with you and I'm on your side. And as long as I am with you and on your side, you have nothing to fear. I am greater than any giant you will ever face. I am more powerful than any problem you will ever be up against. I am more formidable than any foe. I am the alpha and the omega and I am with you. And when John hears that, not only is he encouraged, but he knows the church needs to hear this as well. They need to see this Jesus clearly. And my question is, what would our lives look like if we every single day lived with this Jesus in mind? I think we might live differently. And that's what Revelation is calling us to do. Remember that verse that we looked at earlier? It says, blessed are the one who reads the words of God's message and blessed are the people who hear this message and do what is written in it. See, the whole point of this message, the whole point of the book of Revelation is for us to have a bigger picture of Jesus. And we're supposed to live as if Jesus is really on the throne because he is. He is, as he says in his own words, the alpha and the omega, who is and who was and who is to come the almighty. What does it mean for him to say, I am the alpha and the omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am the first and the last. In other words, I'm the one that started all this and I'm gonna be the one who brings it to a close. Guys, I don't care what anybody tells you. The world is going to end the way that God wants it to. The world is gonna end on his timetable, not ours. And he existed before anything else and he will last forever. He is the alpha and the omega. And he's gonna be the one who brings everything to a close and his people will be victorious with him. And we have that hope today, knowing that the Alpha and the Omega is with us. You see, sometimes people will come to me and they'll say, Chad, why are you so optimistic? Because the world is messed up. I mean, the world's crazy, the world's nuts. How can you be so optimistic when the world is so insane and so evil and dark at times? You know why I'm optimistic? because I know how the story ends. I've read the end of the book and Jesus is victorious 
And we as his people will be victorious with him. So what are we to do as we wait? Peter tells us. Second Peter, Peter writes, so what kind of people should you be? You should live holy lives and serve God as you wait for and look forward to the coming of the day of God. What does Peter say? What should we do while we wait for the coming of the day of God? Well, we should be building bomb shelters. We should be stocking up on ramen noodles, right? No. What should we be doing? Living holy lives and serving God. And as we live holy lives and serving God and we await his coming, we not only are ready personally, but we also get the world ready because they're not looking at the greater reality behind the curtain that we're looking at. And we need to get them to look behind the curtain as well. A few years ago, I had the chance to spend some time with a missionary who did some work in Southeast Southeast Asia in different places where, well, the culture is hostile to Christians. And you could get captured if you were worshiping Jesus publicly. Uh, You could also um, be killed. And he knew what he was getting into, but his first experience, they told him, we're gonna take you to this place and there's gonna be a worship service going on and just know if we get caught, we're gonna be in trouble. And so he went to this place and he assumed that the worship service would be like underground or hidden or you know, in behind closed doors. And when he got there, it was outside. It was kind of in this makeshift open air amphitheater and people were worshiping. There were hundreds and hundreds of local people there worshiping Jesus And they were singing at the top of their lungs, giving praises to God. And this guy that I was talking to said he turned to one of the local, you know, preachers in the area and he said, don't we need to keep it down a little bit or maybe move this inside? What if we get caught? And the local preacher said, why would we do that? We're on the winning side. And then that preacher turned to the guy that I was talking to and he said, These people would rather die singing victory in Jesus than live without Jesus. See, why were those people able to still worship even though there was a threat of persecution all around them? Because they regularly looked behind the veil. They were looking to the greater reality where Jesus is on the throne. And when you see Jesus clearly, it changes everything. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for today and this time we've had to open up your word and study it. And I just pray, Father, that as we go through the book of Revelation, that we won't get caught up in all the controversy and opinions, but that we will just focus on your son. Because as we focus on him, we will receive encouragement and a blessing. So Father, may we always look behind the veil and see Jesus clearly. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.